How are the rest of you doing? Okay, good to see you. Welcome. Boy, I'm proud of you for being here this morning. I know many of you got up early and ran the marathon and then decided to come to church, right? How many ran the marathon? Nobody. Just me? Really? That was a joke. You think I could run a marathon and be here? No way. Well, welcome. My name is Troy. Good to see you this morning. Thanks for being here. If you're a guest with us, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Mi casa, su casa, God would say to you. Um, hey, after our service, we have a, a place where we'd love to meet you. If you're first time here, just say hi, and we got a gift for you. So make plans just to take a couple minutes to say hi to that. But uh, my name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I just want to stay, say real quickly, last week, I uh, thank you for allowing Julie and I to get away. Uh, we went down to Denver for the weekend and uh, had Jeff step in and lead and conclude that series on Neighborly, and he, I thought he did a great job, and appreciate that, Jeff, for doing that. But, uh, uh, and, and by the way, I think it's pretty clear, summer is here, amen? Do you know how, do you know how I know that summer is here? Because I'm wearing flip-flop, that's right, that's the that's sign. No, anyway, uh, some of you don't, don't look at my feet, but uh, it is summertime, I'm loving it, it's beautiful, but uh, glad that you joined us this morning. As you saw, uh, we are starting a new series, and I'm going to be honest with you, I could not be more excited about this. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun, but more than that, I think it's going to change lives. Um, this summer, this whole summer, we are going to take a journey with Jesus, we are going to walk in his steps. We're going to follow Jesus. And how many could use a little bit more Jesus in this world? Me too. Amen. I love, I love me some Jesus. He's amazing. And uh, what we're going to do is that we're going to follow Jesus from his introduction to the world as an adult to his crucifixion and ultimately to the day that he rose from the dead. And uh, we're going to look uh, during these next few weeks um, at some of Jesus' most significant encounters, uh, some of the most uh, important conversations that he had, uh, and and uh, as well as some of the, the teachings that I think are pretty huge. But overriding all of that, one of the things that we're going to focus on is something that is often missed when it comes to Jesus. It's something that people don't talk enough about, I think. And I believe it's why so many people are confused by Christianity. Clearly, it'd be nice if this church was filled, <laughs> every seat filled. But there's a reason, and I think a lot of that is, is that there are a lot of people that are confused by Christianity where they've been completely turned off by it. And, and here, I don't know how we've missed it. I don't know how we've dropped the ball. But if you read the Gospels, when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it could not be any clearer, right? And that is this. Jesus came to introduce something brand new to this world. He came to bring something brand new. He didn't come to extend an old religion that had been around for thousands of years. He didn't come to give us a, a Judaism 2.0. He came to introduce something brand new to the world and more importantly, for the world, for you and I. And, uh, and what he did, um, I, I can't put it, I wish I could put it more in, intensely. He changed everything. What he did changed everything. And so over the next few months, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that truth and, and we're going to see that truth in a clearer way than we've ever seen it before. And I encourage you to not miss one single week. I encourage you to be here at church every week. No, no, don't do that. I know many of you travel and go out, but if you do miss a week, I, I, I highly encourage you to watch online, catch up. You can catch those messages because every week we're going to build on top of the week before. 
and it's going somewhere that is going to just delight your heart and change your life. I believe that. And in fact, it's a good opportunity for you to invite a friend or a neighbor that has kind of been discombobulated by religion or church because this could really straighten out some of the issues that they've been wrestling with. So I'm glad that you're here today. I want to introduce this, and I want to warm, warm, you know, ease into it by warming you up with this little introduction. And, uh, and speaking of uh, warm-ups, every headliner has a warm-up act. If you've ever been to Vegas, you know the big dog has someone come out and kind of start it up and, uh, and get the crowd all warmed up and fired up about it. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus had a warm-up act. Um, it would go on in something like this. And now... From the Jordan River Valley, with locusts and honey on his breath, and wearing camel skins, put your hands together and let's welcome John the Baptist. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's over the top, but that's kind of how Luke, in his gospel, introduces us to John. John the Baptist literally shows up on the pages of history as a warm-up act to Jesus. Um, now, I'm sure that you've heard of, of John the Baptist, but to be clear, you need to understand this. The reason uh, he was called John the Baptist is not because he wasn't John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian or John the Episcopalian. It had nothing to do with denominations. As far as we can tell, the reason he was called John the Baptist was that he was the first person in history to baptize people. Um, this was new. Uh, the Jewish religion had a thing called the mikvah, which was a ceremonial washing. And it was something that if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a, a Jew, you would go into a pool or a tub of some sort and you would basically dip yourself in it. You would dunk yourself in it. And it was a way for you to say, I am washing myself of all that icky Gentileness and it's all going away. And from now on, I am a good Jew. I'm a Jew, right? But um, that's was something that you did by yourself. There was no one there dunking you. You dunked yourself. But John, um, the Baptist, was literally dunking people down in the Jordan River, and that's how he got the name John the Baptizer. Now, Dr. Luke, in his gospel, uh, introduces us to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. And I, I, this is brilliant. I want you to see how he does this and, and pay attention to the details. Look at the details that he gives. He says this in Luke 3, 1. He says, in the 15th year... Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this is the son of Augustus Caesar, who was the one that was around when Jesus was born, you might remember that. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was the tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, remember Lysanias? No, Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, before I go on, I want to stop because I'm losing half of you anyway as I read this. You're just like, blah, blah, blah. I, I want to point something out to you. When you and I read the Bible and we come across a passage like this, um, you and I might be tempted to say, yeah, 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 whatever. Just get on with the story, right? Why this long introduction? You ever just read all these names in these places you've never heard of and you're like, what's that all about? Listen, don't do that because you need to understand there's something more going on here than just meets the eye. Luke is basically speaking to his skeptics. He's speaking to people that have heard this story about Jesus, that there was this man, this man-God that showed up and did these signs and wonders, and he's writing this letter, and he's speaking to his skeptics, and he's basically saying, hey, guys, go ahead and fact-check this yourself. Fact-check me if you want. Um, uh, I'm not making uh, a vague reference here 
to, uh, you know, uh, once upon a time in a place you've never heard of, right? This, this magical thing happened. This isn't a fairy tale. He, he's not saying, hey, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He's not doing that. I'm telling you, he's, he's saying this. What I'm about to tell you is verified history. This has been verified. I have checked it out. And if you don't believe what I'm about to tell you, you can go check it out yourself. Because I'm giving you some names and some places. I'm giving you all the principles. And you can go ask them yourself about what happened. I give you the name of Herod. I give you the name of Pilate. I give you the area Judea and Galilee. You can go to these places. Because this is real history with real people from a real place. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is important. This is, this, I love that stuff. As a historian, I love the fact that Luke is saying, hey man, check me out if you don't believe this. And then verse 2, he says this. He says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, up at the temple, the high priests were Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, whose father's name was Zechariah, and John was down in the wilderness. When they say the wilderness, they're talking about the Jordan River, which was down by the Dead Sea. This, is, this was the desert. This is where David ran to when he was hiding from Saul. John was down in the wilderness in the Jordan River Valley. Now, just to flow with this a little bit, um, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, this is what Matthew says. He says that many people, many people went out from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of Jordan to go see this thing that was happening, to go see what John was doing. The point being is, is that there were a lot of eyewitnesses. This isn't John and his two buddies doing this thing. There were a lot of people. You need to understand that the Jordan River was a long ways away from everywhere. It was about a day's travel at least from almost everywhere in Israel. And there were a lot of people. Literally, there were thousands of people. In spite of the fact that it was a hard trip to get there, there were thousands of people that came down to see what John was up to. And in verse 6, it says this, uh, John says, uh, Matthew says this, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. Now, to you and I, that's not much of a big deal. We're used to that here in 21st century Christianity. But back then, this was totally unheard of. This was totally bizarre, what he just said. Um, in the first century, the Jewish people, follow me on this, the Jewish people had a sophisticated system for how to deal with your sins, we all sin. How do we get our sins taken care of? Well, there was a specific way that he had to do it. First of all, you had to go to the temple. You couldn't just go anywhere. You had to go to the temple, which was where? Up in Jerusalem. And you'd go to the temple in Jerusalem, and you'd bring with you a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and you would find a priest. There would be a priest there, someone in big garbs. You could notice them. They had all their ornamentation. They looked like they were in charge. And you'd bring the lamb to the priest, and you would confess your sins for that year. You would tell them all the stuff you did. And then the priest would take his hand... And he'd put it on your head, and then he'd put it on the lamb's head. And then he'd say some specific words. And then he'd pull out a knife, and he would gently slice the throat of that, that animal. And blood would spill out of that animal onto the ground and onto your feet. I mean, it was a messy affair. And then you were forgiven. Simple. That's how you got your sins dealt with. And so uh, for a thousand years... That was how it was done every day. But here, out here in the desert, here's this nobody out in the middle of nowhere doing his own thing. I mean, he's just, it's disturbing. He's gone rogue. He's off the reservation. He's, he, people were coming and confessing their sins to John as if he was a walking, 
talking temple. A portable temple. Come to me and you'll get your sins forgiven. And uh, it was fascinating because he had no education apparently. He was connected to nothing up at the temple and he had no authority. And uh, he was saying and doing things that no one understood. Okay? But here in in the Gospel of John, if you turn a few pages over, you go to John... And this isn't John the Baptist, this is the disciple John that followed Jesus. Uh, He gives us a few clues to what the Baptist was doing down there in the desert. Uh, Writing about these events many years later, John the disciple says this in John chapter 1 verse 6. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7 he says this, he came to as a witness to testify concerning the light. Now, what is the light? Well, if you read the whole chapter, you see that John is being coy, he's being poetic, and he's referencing Jesus, the Son of God, as this light that come, that's come into the world, right? And, and, and he says, so he came as a witness concerning the light, Jesus, so that through him all might believe. In verse 8, he goes, he himself, John himself, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then cryptically, look at what John says here in verse 9. He says, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, was entering the world, something new. And then verse 10, he says, he was in the world. This is brilliant. He says, he was in the world, and even though the world was made through him, the world didn't know him. The world did not uh, recognize him. And so I just want to present this. Simply put, John the Baptist came to testify to the arrival of the long-awaited and much-prophesied Messiah or Savior of the world. And he was testifying, I want you to understand this, he was testifying that something brand new was coming. Stick with me, people. If you miss this, you miss everything about Christianity. He was testifying that something new was coming and that everything, and I mean everything, was about to change. Now, how do we know this? Well, in verse 17... John the disciple makes a curious statement, and it's one that you might have read and probably read a few times in your life, and you probably just kind of skipped over it. But boy, this statement points to the friction and the tension that would develop between Jesus and the leaders up at the temple. And every time Jesus ran into these religious people, there was a clash. There was some stuff going down. And, the, and, and, and this is pointing to that. And that happened as long as Jesus was alive until they ultimately stripped him naked and hung him on a cross three years later. And so in verse 17, look at what John says. This is his, he says, for the law, put this up, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, um, once you get this, um, you'll notice that there's not an and between those two statements, right? In other words, John is contrasting these two statements. It's not one statement. He's contrasting, he's comparing them. The semicolon in, the, in there infers that there's an instead of or there's a but in there. In other words, it would read like this. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Get that? Again, John the Baptist was testifying that everything was about to change. There was a law, but something new was coming. Something new was about to happen. But what? Well, John continues the story in verse 19. It says this, that this, this he says, this was John's testimony 
when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent down some priests and some temple assistants, some Levites, to ask him who the heck he was. They came down there, and, and you need to understand that back then, in those days in Israel, there was always someone out there causing problems. There was always someone stirring up something. But why? Israel was an occupied nation. Rome was taking control. They didn't have control of their people. So there were uprisings, and there were riots, and there were problems. And then on top of that, there were religious things where there were people out there claiming, I'm the Messiah, and people would gather, and there would be this big brouhaha. And Rome, uh, this occupying nation, did not like problems. Because they, wanted, they were overseeing this, and they, problems meant less money, less people working, more military. And they just wanted to send money, extract money from Israel, and send it back to Rome. And so they would go to the religious leaders, and they would say, hey, are you going to fix this problem? Because if you don't fix this problem, we'll go down and we'll fix it for you, and you know how that'll look. And so the religious leaders like, well, we'll take care of it. We don't want that. And so, in this case, it's interesting. The religious leaders went down to investigate this and to put a stop to it. And this is a big deal because these guys never left Jerusalem. Why should they? The temple was in Jerusalem. That's everything to them. The law was everything. That's where God was. He was right there. Why would they go anywhere else? But they decide to go down there, and it's interesting. Uh, in all likelihood, when they arrived down at the Jordan River, this day's journey, they arrived in a big caravan with all their entourage and their nice robes and all of their animals and big black SUVs pulled up and everybody's like, ooh, who's that? What's going on? Who's that? Ooh, it's the guys from up on the hill, right? And they get down there and it's fascinating. Before they could even ask the question, John answers it for them. John answers their question. He's standing in the water in verse 20. It says that he came right out and he said, I'm not the Messiah. <laughs> you came down here looking, I'm not the Messiah. And, and, and these guys are stymied by that. And in verse 21, they asked him, well, then who are you? What are you doing? Are you Elijah? You ever read that before? I went, Why? how did Elijah just get inserted into this conversation? Where did he come from? Well, this, this is fascinating. They asked him this because, the, check this out. The last book of the Jewish scriptures was Malachi. And it was written 400 years before God was always speaking to his people, but he stopped at Malachi. For 400 years, he went silent. And in the book of Malachi, Malachi prophesied that right before the Messiah would come, God would send a messenger. And Malachi said that according to this, this Malachi, this messenger would be like, resemble, have the spirit of Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, who was kind of a wild man, you know, kind of this bold, brash guy, right? And, and this, this, this messenger would come to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And so in verse 21, they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? And John said, no, I'm not. And they're like, well, then are you the prophet that Moses talked about? Moses had predicted their prophet before. And he's like, no, I'm not that. And in verse 22, they finally said, okay, then who are you? Please give us an answer because we've got to take something back to those people who sent us. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? Why are you disturbing the peace? Why are you doing this thing? Why are you acting like a portable temple for giving people sins? Who, who, how? And John, in verse 23, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says this. He says, I am a voice shouting out in the wilderness. Prepare the way. For the Lord's coming. In other words, something new is coming. 
Something brand new is coming. And, I, and, and, I, and, and, and get ready. Get your hearts right or you're going to miss this new thing, this incredible thing that God is going to do. Well, they, they hear that and they don't understand it. And so they basically ignore him. And in verse 25, they, they go back to this. Well, if you're not going to tell us who you are, tell us why you're baptizing people. I mean, if you're not, you know, it, 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 why are you baptizing people if you're not the Messiah or if you're not Elijah or if you're not the prophet? Why are you doing this? In other words, where did you get, where do you get off doing what you're doing? Where did you get the authority to do this? Who are you speaking for? And, and, and John says this in 20, verse 26, and it's famous. He says, I baptize with water, but among you, in your midst, Right now, somewhere in this crowd is one that you don't know and he is the one who is coming after me and the straps of his sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. In other words, something greater than me is here. You think I'm a big dog and all these people are coming? I'm nothing compared to the one that's here. You're nothing. You think you come down and you got all that and you're looking good? You're nothing Someone greater than you. In fact, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than your precious law is here. I'm telling you people, everything's about to change. Everything is about to change. Well, of course, that wasn't the answer that they were looking for. So they turned away and they finally left. They just got frustrated with it. But the thing that John the Baptist came to do hadn't been done yet. He hadn't introduced the headliner yet, right? And so, uh, in verse 28, John the disciple sets the stage. He says this in verse 28. He says, this all happened at Bethany across the Jordan. Look at the details there. In other words, if you don't believe me, go down and talk to those people because they were there. This happened down at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptized. And in verse 29, he says this. The next day, get this. The next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him. Now, I want you to understand this. When Jesus came down to the Jordan River, he didn't come with a caravan. He didn't come with his entourage. He didn't come with a bunch of animals. It was just one man walking towards John who was standing in the middle of the river. And before I read to you next what what John says, what John the Baptist says here, I want to just ask you to pause and try to put yourself in this moment. Because this is a It's a big moment because once these words John says are said and spoken, nothing would be the same ever again. It would never, nothing would be the same. In in this moment, God in the flesh, God in a bod, Jesus has shown up. And after these words are said, nothing would be the same. Jesus' life would never be the same after this moment. He'd lived 30 years basically in anonymity And all of a sudden, he shows up, and he's going public for the very first time. He's being presented for the very first time. His public ministry would begin this day, and it wouldn't end until three years later when he is stripped naked and nailed to a cross. Never be the same. The nation of Israel would never be the same after this. The conflict and change was happening. In fact, a few years after this, the temple was destroyed. The temple was completely leveled, just as Jesus predicted it would. He said, not one stone will be set on top of it. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. No one believed it. It changed everything. The nation of Israel, there would be no more sacrifices for sin. 
There'd be no more blood. There'd be no more God in a box. He's in this room. He's right here. We know where God is. He's centralized. If you want to see God, you got to come to Jerusalem. This is his address. He's inside this temple. Never, never again. Never be the same. And the world, the world would never be the same again, ever. I mean, uh, the whole world, whether it knew it or not, was waiting for this moment. And I just want you to understand how fragile this is. I mean, everything's hinging right here. There's something about to change, and it's so fragile. You basically have just two men. Two men who are living in a world and in a time where if one of them got snuffed out, no one would care. At any point, they could have got killed. There'd be no accountability. And the thing is, is God's master plan up in heaven, his master plan, which he put into action the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, all of that was hanging in the balance with these two men in this conversation. And everyone that's there on the riverbanks, all of their eyes are focused on John the Baptist standing in the river. And in verse 29, John says this. He points to Jesus, who's coming in the crowd, and he says, look. He doesn't say, uh, pretend to look, or believe, or pretend to believe. He doesn't say, imagine. He says, look, look. And, uh, and uh, basically, John the Baptist invites the crowd, and you and me, to look at the person of Jesus, to examine him, and to investigate him, and to decide for ourselves who, or more importantly, what he was. He says, look. And he goes on. He doesn't name him by name. He doesn't say, look, there's Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God. He uses this nickname, this euphemism, and everyone there, all these Jewish people, good Jewish boys and girls are there, they, all, they knew what the Lamb of God meant. They'd heard that phrase before, growing up in Jewish Sunday school. Technically, they went to Sunday school probably on Saturday because that was their Sabbath. But Jewish Sunday school, they had learned and heard these stories, and they knew about this one story about this guy named Abraham, Father Abraham, and how Father Abraham had one son, only one son, and God asked him to sacrifice that son, and Abraham took him up on a hill, put him on a post, lifted up his knife, and right before he drove the knife through his his son's chest, his only son's chest, God miraculously provided a lamb in the bushes, a lamb of God. And they all thought of that story. Or they thought of how every year, ever since they left Egypt, they had to go take a lamb and they had to sacrifice it and eat it and, sac- and remember the, the, the Passover, this lamb of God. Or to get their sins taken care of, they had to go up to the, the temple and give it to the priest and they knew that that was the lamb of God. And here he's pointing at Jesus saying, Here is the Lamb of God, and then he goes a step further, who comes to take away the sins of the world. Now, I'm telling you, that's probably where he lost the crowd. They were fine with some of that other crazy talk, but take away the sins of the world? I mean, they they had to be going, wait a second, John. Um, First of all, we're out here in the wilderness. We're out in the middle of nowhere. The temple is miles from here. There's no altar out here. There's no priests. There's no uh, sheep. Um, How can our sins be taken away from us here? And moreover, and more importantly, how can the sins be taken away from the world? Are you saying that God forgives non-Jewish sins now? 
Are you saying that God is going to forgive our enemies and all these foreigners? Are you saying that God will forgive these Romans? John, man, why would he do that? You know, you know that the world is evil and the world will always be evil. And our entire, get this, our entire religious system has been designed to keep us away from the world. We don't eat their food. We don't wear the clothes that they wear. We don't let our sons and daughters marry their kids. And we certainly don't go into their homes, right? Our whole history, our whole history as Jews has been defined by our rejection of the world and its foreign ways. In fact, we've been waiting hundreds of years for God to send a Messiah who would come in here and kick out all these foreigners out of his land for us, just like Joshua did at the beginning. Uh, Our whole frame of reference, John, is that God is for us. God is not for the world. He's for us. And now you're telling us that God has provided a way for the world, for this lamb to take away the sins of the world? That's too much. That's too much. And that, my friend, is the tension that Jesus stepped into when he stepped into that river. There was this tension constantly there, and and that tension uh, created a lot of confusion and a lot of conflict uh, throughout the years. In fact, I would suggest to you there's still a lot of confusion about this and a lot of conflict about this today. And I think part of the reason is, is because the church of Jesus Christ has done a poor job of, of sharing this truth. Because this is key for us to understand, and that is this, is that Jesus was the bridge between two different covenants. He was the bridge between these two different covenants, these two different value systems, these two different sets of laws and commandments and duties and all of that stuff. Some of you might be pushing back, but think about this. Long time before Moses ever showed up on the scene and brought the law, God promised Abraham that his family would become a great nation. Remember this? Abraham wanted a son, and God said, I'll do you one better. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he said, not only that, your family... And this nation, um, through your family and through this nation, the entire world is going to be blessed. That was his promise to Abraham. And uh, unfortunately, as the centuries passed, the nation of Israel, Abraham's kids, his family, kind of forgot that they weren't the end-all, be-all. They kind of forgot that they were just simply a means to an end, that God was going to do something through them, through this one family, to bless the whole world, to bring a glorious ending for the whole world. And a way to think about it is is that Israel, in a way, was kind of like a cocoon. It was this quantified thing that God was doing and that he was bringing about something, and inside that cocoon there was life, but it was a little mucky, a little funky, right? But one day that cocoon would break open And it would bring life and light to the whole world and beauty. And so John the Baptist came to prepare the hearts of the people for this new thing that God had promised that he was going to do a long, long time ago. Jesus was the bridge between these two different covenants. 
He was born under one so that he could introduce the other. He was born into one so that he could introduce this new thing that God was about to do. And we know that. And we also know that it didn't work out as well as maybe everybody had hoped. In fact, not everybody received it. A lot of people rejected this new thing that Jesus did. And as you know, the reason why, from personal experience, you understand that change is hard for people. They had been doing it for thousands of years. Change is hard. Change is stressful for people. They kind of have something down and they got some semblance of control. And as you know, old uh, ways are hard to die. Old habits, you get into, I know how to do my thing with God. I know what to do and left and right. And I, and it's just, and I do this new thing. You understand? And so people rejected it. And also, here's the other thing. Isn't it true that those who profit the most from the status quo are the least inclined to let it go? There was a religious system that had been set, set up about this thing, and there were people in charge of that, and they had power, and why would they want that to change? Jesus is bringing this new thing? No, 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 no. We're happy with the old thing because we're in control. We, are, we have power, right? See, um, you need to remember this. When Jesus showed up um, in, in his, in, and he came, the temple system, this whole thing where you had to come to the temple, uh, it was very wealthy, and it was very powerful. And according to Jesus, it was very corrupt from top to bottom. You can look it up. Look at his quotes when he talks about the temple. Jesus never had one good thing to say about the temple and the temple system. And we know this, that through um, our own Sunday school studies, if you've read the Bible, you understand that it was God that established the sacrificial system. He's the one that said, hey, for sin, blood has to be shed. Okay? And so he set that up. And you remember, they had the tabernacle, the tent of the tabernacles, and that's where that... But God did not establish the temple system. That was a man's idea. That was man's doing of creating this big, giant temple and putting God in a box and saying, here he is right here. And when Jesus saw the temple, when you see him come to the temple and his disciples are like, what do you think? He, he was always saddened by it. And even angered, you know, the first time he got there, he flipped over the tables. Get out of here. This is wrong. And so I just want you to understand, as we go through this over the next few months, we need to remember that Jesus came to do something new. Two things, very specifically. Number one, if you're taking notes, and I'll close with this. Jesus came to establish a new covenant. It was not an extension of the old one. A covenant is basically an arrangement between God and mankind. And Jesus came to establish a new arrangement, a new deal between God and you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And me. He came to do that. Behold, the old was gone. And something new, something totally new took its place. And listen to me, if that isn't infinitely clear to you, if you don't see it that way, if the version of Christianity that you grew up with uh, was kind of confusing to you because it seemed to be mixed with a lot of religious rules and regulations and rituals and all these things and sprinkled in with a little bit of grace and truth, if that's what you went through, it's possible that you have missed this new covenant that Jesus brought. And, or maybe um, if you or someone you know left the Christian faith, you left your faith, 
maybe in college, because something you read in the first half of this book that you didn't understand and it seemed odd to you. My friend, it is possible that you left unnecessarily, maybe too early. Because what you do, you need to read the second part of this. You need to reread the second part of this. Why? Because everything changed. Everything changed. If you don't know that, I invite you to stick with us over these next few months as we rediscover Jesus and what he was up to. So number one, he came to establish a new covenant. Number two, Jesus came to establish a new command. And this one, I got to just admit, as a pastor, I have failed to teach this commandment as I should. Jesus came to bring a new commandment. If you remember, he often contrasted himself with Moses. And it always messed with the religious leaders. It was always in conflict with the religious leaders. And remember, to them, the law was everything. And Moses was the lawgiver, right? There was only one lawgiver. <laughs> and it was clear. And the religious leaders would come to Jesus and they'd say, by whose authority are you saying this? Who are you to add to the law, right? Moses is the one that said, remember, Moses said that if you're caught in adultery, we need to stone her to death. Moses said, Moses said, but who are you speaking for? And if you remember in Jesus' most famous sermon, he said this, he said, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, I add a little bit more to this. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say. And those religious leaders like, who are you to set yourself up against Moses? God gave Moses the law of Mount Sinai. Moses did this. There's only one law and there's only one lawgiver and you're not it and we follow, we follow Moses. And so this tension and Jesus was always pushing back. He kept pushing this issue. In fact, when an expert in the law came to Jesus, he came to test him. He wasn't really interested in what Jesus had to say. He was testing him. He came and said, Jesus, what do you say is the greatest commandment? There's 10 commandments and there's 600 laws. Which one is, you, is the greatest? And Jesus magically took all 10 commandments and all 600 laws and they summed them up into two. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do that and you will live. And then as if that wasn't enough, he shrunk those two to one. In his final act, you need to read this, on the night before he is arrested, on the night that he celebrated his last Passover meal with his disciples, at the end of this whole journey, before he's about to crucify, be crucified, he gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. And in John chapter 13, verse 34, how did we miss this? Jesus said this, a new command I give you. A new command I give you. Love one another. Not just like in brotherly love, not just in romantic love, not just like you love a hot dog. Love each other as I have loved you. And you know how much I've loved you. I'm going, and you will know tomorrow how much I love you. This much. Sacrificial love. This is my new command. And then he goes on and he says this. This is brilliant. And he says, it is by this. It is by this, this sign that everyone will know that you're part of this. It is by this that everyone will know you're disciples if you love one another. It's not going to be your, the clothes that you wear and the robes that you have. It's not going to be by what church or what denomination you go to or which temple you serve. It's not going to be known by your sacrifices that you're making. It's not by your circumcision, and no one wants to know about that. It's not any of that. 
It is by this that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I've loved you. My point is, is Jesus is telling them that this command, that command, would be the signifying mark of a follower of this new movement, this new thing that God is doing. Oh, I can't wait to get to that message with you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And before we get to that, there's other sermons that Jesus preaches and other stories he tells and other uh, diseases that he heals. But first things first, let's go back to where we started. To show that he was in total sync with this new thing that God was doing, Jesus steps into the Jordan River, which is miles away from the religious center of the world with its temple and its marble colonnades and its religious ornamentation. And Jesus is baptized by John, this rogue preacher, this wild-eyed, wild-haired preacher in a muddy little river out in the middle of the wilderness. Wow. What a, what a great beginning to a story, to a journey that we're going to take together. Amen? Can't wait to get to the rest of it, but I can't do it all today. And so I'm going to just close by inviting you to come back next week to part two of This Changes Everything. Amen? Bring a friend.